Hey, everybody. Welcome to Episode 5 of Audio Scrambler, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Bob Waller. In Episode 4 of Audio Scrambler, I said that the next episode was going to be about circus music in memory of the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and & Bailey Circus, which just went out of business. I'm having a lot of fun putting that episode together, and it's going to come out in just a few days. But in the meantime, I realized that I have an episode already in the can from my previous podcast called Songland Diaries that would be a good follow-up to the most recent episode of Audio Scrambler. Episode 4 of Audio Scrambler commemorated Mental Health Awareness Month, which happens every May in the United States. It looked at five songs that shed light on mental health issues and were written by artists who understand those issues because of first-hand experience. In this episode of Audio Scrambler, we're going to focus on one of those songs, Rehab by Amy Winehouse. They tried to make me go to rehab, I said no, no, no. In her lifetime, Rehab was decidedly Winehouse's signature song. But will it stand the test of time? Will we continue to remember it as the quintessential Amy Winehouse song? Or will other Winehouse songs emerge as perhaps better representations of her talent? Without ado, here's Audio Scrambler's rebroadcast of Songland Diaries, Rehab Revisited. Have you ever formed an opinion about something based on a first impression only to discover that that first impression was not exactly accurate. Take, for example, Orson Welles, who, unbeknownst to me, had directed Citizen Kane. Probably the most highly acclaimed film of all time, but who I thought of solely as that crappy magician on the Merv Griffin show. I can name the card that I saw that's in my mind. The card that's in your mind. I saw a two of spades. Correct, right? No. <laughs> this episode of the Songland Diaries is all about that kind of mistaken first impression. And its focus is the late, great Amy Winehouse, who died exactly five years ago this week. At the time of her death, I was not at all a fan. It's not that I actively disliked her music, it's just that I never took the time to look into it. In fact, as far as I can remember, I had only ever heard one Amy Winehouse song, and it was this one. They tried to make me go to rehab, I said no, no, no. That's her 2006 hit Rehab from her second and final album, Back to Black. As you can hear, it's an exquisitely produced single with a nice Motown feel, sung from the perspective of someone who is vehemently resisting being admitted into an addiction rehabilitation program. Rehab was by far the highest charting song Winehouse ever recorded. It reached the number seven position in the UK and the number nine position in the US. And the Grammy goes to Amy Winehouse. Tony Bennett himself announced it as the winner of the Record of the Year Award at the 2008 Grammys. It also won the awards for Song of the Year and Best Female Pop Vocal Performance. It was a very successful pop song by any standard and, in many ways, well-deserving of its reputation as Amy's signature song. But I know But if you wanted to convince someone that Amy Winehouse's music is worth checking out, would Rehab be the perfect introduction? It's definitely a better than average pop song, but 
Frankly, I think it may be the reason I never paid attention to the rest of Amy's music while she was alive. It's a novelty song, it's a funny song. That's Amy herself in an interview for Yahoo South by Southwest, referring to Rehab as a novelty song. And of course, novelty songs are famous for not being taken seriously, which is probably why I didn't take it seriously and didn't bother to listen to more of Amy's music until long after her death. But now, on the five-year anniversary of her passing, I think it's time to revisit Rehab. Because as Amy's earthly existence slips farther and farther into the realm of memory, it's appropriate to ask not only who was Amy, but more importantly, who is Amy? What does she mean to us now? And what will time determine her legacy to be? Certainly, Rehab will be part of that legacy. Heck, I might even agree that it tells her story better than any of her other songs, but it doesn't tell the whole story. So let's look at what it does and does not do for Amy. And let's begin, as the song begins, with the voice. They tried to make me go to rehab, I said no, no, no. Amy's voice in rehab doesn't strike me as exceptional, but it's good. Deep, sultry, and nicely controlled. Billboard described Winehouse's performance on rehab as Shirley Bassey Goldfinger meets Ella Fitzgerald. I'm making believe. This is Ella's number one 1944 hit, I'm Making Believe, which she recorded with the Ink Spots. And I suppose you could compare Ella's deep, sultry tones in this song to those of Amy in rehab, but to be honest, it's hard for me to say I hear Shirley Bassey or Ella Fitzgerald in particular in rehab. Amy certainly had her influences, but to her credit, she tended to weave the vocal techniques of her predecessors pretty seamlessly into her own unique style. By contrast, let's look at Madeline Peru's artistic debt to Billie Holiday. Here's Holiday's 1937 hit, Getting Some Fun Out of Life. With a little petty And here's Peru's remake from her 1996 debut album, Dreamland. You can do your betting, we're getting some fun out of life. As you can hear, Peru sounds a lot like Holiday. In fact, the most common criticism of Peru's work has been that it sounds too much like Billie Holiday, that Peru is merely an impersonator. Now, I'm actually a fan of Madeline Peru, but I do understand that criticism. Here's humorous David Sedaris doing his impression of Billie Holiday. My baloney has a first name. It's O-S-C-A-R. Sedaris knows he sounds too much like Billie Holiday to be taken seriously, and so he made a joke out of it. You just don't get the same kind of artistic cred when you sound too much like your influences. But I don't think Amy did that. Winehouse, like Peru, once covered a song that is closely associated with her biggest influence. And in Winehouse's case, that's Sarah Vaughan. Lullaby of Birdland, that's what I always hear when you sigh. That's Sarah Vaughan's 1954 recording of Lullaby of Birdland. 
And now here's Winehouse's 2006 remake of it. Clearly, Winehouse is paying tribute to Vaughn in this recording, but her vocals are significantly different from Vaughn's. When I hear Amy's voice, I don't hear crass imitations. I hear nuanced homages to the greatest female jazz vocalists of all time. And like those classic jazz vocalists, Amy had a way of using her voice like an instrument. Listen to this clip from What a Difference a Day Makes by one of Amy's biggest influences, Dinah Washington. What a difference a day made. 24 little hours What the sun and the flowers Now let me replay a few little bits of that, and this time, notice how Dinah bends those notes on the words four and hours in this phrase. Twenty-four little hours. Sounds like something a trumpet player would do with a mute. And now listen to the way her voice swells on the word flowers. What the sun and the flowers. And the non-verbal note she sings as she slides into where there used to be rain, as well as the intentional rasp she puts on where. Mm, where there used to be rain. These are all things jazz musicians do to give their performances the complexities that constitute a unique interpretation. And now listen to how Amy Winehouse does it. Here's the repeated refrain from Stronger Than Me, which was the first single from her debut album, Frank. And now listen to how Amy riffs on that phrase at the end of the song. Listen to how she goes up high and then down low, bending notes and finding different ways to phrase the same musical line, just like a jazz player. You should be stronger than me. 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 I love how the trumpet echoes what Amy just did, as if to draw our attention to the similarities between Amy's voice and a trumpet. Very jazzy. Jazz played a huge role in Amy's life. In fact, she studied jazz vocals formally, first at the Susie Earnshaw Theater School and later at the prestigious Sylvia Young Theater School. Here she is in 2000, singing in the National Youth Jazz Orchestra at age 17. Amy was all about jazz. And the funny thing to me is, I had no idea. How in the world could I have failed to notice something that was so central to her career? The answer 
is this. They tried to make me go to rehab. I said no, no, no. The only Amy Winehouse song I had ever heard in her lifetime was, as she put it, a novelty song. And for novelty songs to work, you kind of need to be able to make out the words. Imagine if Weird Al applied so many jazz techniques to his voice that it sounded like a trumpet and we couldn't make out his lyrics. There'd be no point to it. Rehab was never meant to be a showcase of Winehouse's talent. Actually, there are two things I should point out in fairness. One is that Rehab does have some subtle traces of artful vocal interpretation. Note the way Winehouse lags whenever she sings no, 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 as if to suggest a refusal to move, or the slight raspy quiver she puts on the word baby in this line. It really sounds like she's about to lose it. Like, it's really hard for her to talk about how her drinking problem has led to the failure of her love life, or maybe vice versa. So, yes, there are subtle hints of Winehouse's vocal prowess in rehab, just not enough to prove to the uninitiated that Amy really does have formidable skills. The other thing I should concede in fairness is that rehab was never conceived to be a jazz song. So it's not entirely fair to judge it by jazz standards. Back to Black, the album that Rehab is on, was conceived as an homage to the girl groups of the 50s and 60s. Hence, Winehouse's signature beehive hairdo, which she has stated was inspired by the Ronettes. That cool retro soul sound, which she has said was inspired largely by the Shirelles. And of course, that awesome band. Winehouse's backup band for the Back to Black album was none other than Sharon Jones's backup band, The Dap Kings. This is their song, Stranger to My Happiness, and as you can hear, they've got that old-school soul sound down pat. They were a perfect choice for Back to Black, and a clear sign that Amy Winehouse was hitting the big time. Another clear sign that Amy was hitting the big time was her new producer, Mark Ronson, a budding powerhouse of big money productions. Ronson had already worked with Most Def, Jack White, Sean Paul, and Ghostface Killa, and would later produce this number one super hit. Don't believe me, just watch. That's Bruno Mars on Uptown Funk, which, as you probably know, was absolutely ubiquitous in 2015. Ronson is a consummate organizer of musical talent. And it was he who suggested Amy Wright Rehab. So let's switch gears here and change from talking about the music of Rehab to talking about the lyrics of Rehab. In keeping with Winehouse's infamous frankness, Rehab gets straight to the point. They tried to make me go to rehab, I said no, no, no. An unidentified they tried to make her go to rehab, but she refused. No. By the way, that unidentified they was probably the management company that had made her a star. 
And more particularly, it was probably Nick Shemansky who started managing her when she was 16 and he was only 19. They were almost like childhood friends and by most accounts, Nick had a way of keeping Amy grounded and out of too much trouble. But as Amy's success grew, so did her addiction issues. And sometime between the release of her first album, Frank, in 2003, and her second and final album, Back to Black, in 2006, Shemansky became concerned about Winehouse's increasingly out-of-control behavior and tried to get her to enroll herself in a 70-day rehabilitation program. Amy refused. I can't in the 2015 biopic, Amy, Shemansky claims he had finally convinced Amy to go to rehab when her father, Mitch Winehouse, intervened and convinced her otherwise. My daddy thinks I'm fine. The facts of the story are a little hard to pin down because Ronson's version is a little different. He claims Amy's father wanted her to go to rehab. In a 2011 interview with BBC Radio One, Ronson stated, she hit a certain low and her dad came over to try and talk some sense into her. And she was like, he tried to make me go to rehab, but I was like, no, no, no. Whatever the case, it appears that Winehouse really did make some kind of token appearance at a rehab center at that time. Whether it was to appease Shemansky or her father is unclear, but listen to this line. Almost everything Amy Winehouse wrote was autobiographical, so the man she's referring to in this line is probably an employee of the rehab center. A 2006 article in The Sun quotes Amy as having said, I asked my dad if he thought I needed to go. He said, no, but I should give it a try. So I did for just 15 minutes. I went in, said hello, and explained that I drink because I'm in love and have screwed up that relationship. Then, says Amy, I walked out. She also fired Shemansky and entered the big money world of Mark Ronson. It was during her first week of working with Ronson on Back to Black that Ronson convinced Amy to write rehab. Mark was accompanying Amy on a shopping trip in New York when Amy casually mentioned the failed attempt to get her into rehab. In his 2011 interview with BBC Radio 1, Ronson stated, she was like, he tried to make me go to rehab. And I was like, no, no, no. And the first thing I was like, ding, 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 ding. Like, I mean, I was supposed to be like, oh, how was that for you? And all I'm like is, we got to get back to that studio. Translation, Ronson saw dollar signs. By this time, the world was already fairly aware of Amy's struggles with addiction, and Ronson, knowing Winehouse's proclivity for shockingly frank songwriting, correctly realized not only that Amy would probably write that song, but the public would eat it up. And of course, we did. And the Grammy goes to Amy Winehouse. Here was this smolderingly sexual young woman struggling with addiction and laying it all out in a shockingly honest song. Rehab satisfied the public's purient 
voyeuristic desires to peer into the secret life of a sex symbol, to watch someone else suffer, and to see how far the great can fall. On the plus side, I suppose we, the public, also liked rehab as an expression of what is commonly known as attitude. On one level, rehab is a song of someone who insists on doing things her way and refuses to give in to other people's negative perceptions of her. She knows she's got problems, but she's going to embrace them proudly with the confidence that someday she will bounce back triumphantly. Yes, I've been black, but when I come back, no, no, no. But the thing is, Amy didn't bounce back triumphantly. And the lyrics of Rehab are peppered with signs of defeat and vulnerability that belie the outer expression of confidence. Like the way she calls her father daddy and the way his approval is the only thing that ultimately matters. And if my daddy thinks I'm fine. Or the way she acknowledges that alcohol isn't a solution. But I know it don't come in a But then asserts that it's the only way to deal with her failed love life. The most heartbreaking line in rehab is this one. There's nothing you can teach me, but I can learn from Mr. Hathaway. The Mr. Hathaway that Amy portrays as her ultimate guru in this line is the legendary soul singer Donnie Hathaway. Here he is with Roberta Flack in 1972 on the number one hit, Where Is The Love? Where is the love? Hathaway was a gifted singer, as you can clearly hear, but he suffered from schizophrenia and succumbed to his disease at the height of his career in 1979 when he jumped out his 15th floor window and died. His struggles with mental disease were as infamous as his suicide, and this is who Amy professes to relate to in rehab. By the way, the literary technique that Amy uses here is called Illusion. That's illusion starting with an A, not an I. It's when you make a reference to something or someone else, and Amy did that quite a lot. In fact, my favorite Amy Winehouse illusion is in this song. That's me and Mr. Jones from Back to Black. It is reputedly a song about her love affair with rapper Nas. And the allusion is to this song. Me and Mr. Jones. We got a That's Billy Paul's number one hit from 1972, Me and Mrs. Jones a lavishly produced song sung by a man having a secret affair with a married woman. Both he and Mrs. Jones know their affair is, quote, wrong, but neither seems able to quit. Me and Mr. Jones. 
By alluding to Billy Paul's song, Winehouse skillfully cues us into the ambivalence she felt about her secret relationship with Nas. She is alternately enamored of him and angered by him. And as in so many other Amy Winehouse songs, she is shockingly frank and deeply personal. It is undeniably more sincere than Rehab, and for my money, more representative of the kind of work Amy generally did. And yet, it was Rehab that made Amy an international superstar. In a way, I suppose that makes sense. Substance abuse is what Amy was most famous for in her lifetime, so when she laid it out for everybody to hear, we ate it up. Rehab was a nice tiny box we could stick Amy into. We could hear that song and think, yep, that's what she's all about. And as much as I hate to admit it, I have to confess that I'm as guilty of that sin as anybody else. When I heard Rehab, I thought, oh yeah, that's that chick with addiction problems. As if that's all I ever really needed to know about Amy. In retrospect, I suppose I could have been a bit more open-minded. But I also don't think I should be too hard on myself because truth be told, rehab does not do Amy justice. And if I can be really honest, it kind of creeps me out. Not long ago, I took my teenage son to a driver's ed class sponsored by the Sacramento Sheriff's Office. It was one of those classes designed to scare teenagers into driving safely, and it was full of really unsettling video and audio recordings made by real-life accident victims just moments before their fatal collisions. It's a really creepy thing to be able to see and hear the events that immediately led to someone's untimely death. And that's how I feel when I hear rehab. Here was the world's most famously troubled starlet struggling with a life-threatening addiction, and here we were reveling in the spectacle. Amy had given us exactly what we wanted, an inside view to the suffering of the rich and famous, and we rewarded her greatly for it. Rehab became Amy Winehouse's biggest hit rising to the top 10 all over the world and earning her more music awards than any British female had ever won. But it also brought her an uncomfortable notoriety. The paparazzi hounded her everywhere she went and she became the perennial fodder of cruel jokes. Amy Winehouse's health is at risk due to her crack problem. Her doctors say that if she doesn't wash it soon, she'll get gangrene. Her youthful round face with its broad grin and impish eyes gave away to the gaunt, weary look of someone trapped in a surreal drama she can't control. Her behavior became more and more erratic. She canceled concerts and whole tours. She showed up on stage too wasted to even find the microphone, let alone perform. Her problems began interfering with the fortunes of powerful investors, and it was all more than she could handle. On July 23, 2011, Amy Winehouse was found dead of alcohol poisoning in her home in Camden Square, London. At the time, I was not a fan. But in 2015, I happened to catch Asif Kapadia's biopic, Amy. You're becoming an artist in the public eye. The more people see of me, the more they'll realize that all I'm good for is making music. 
and I was mesmerized. Here was an accomplished, educated singer who had dedicated her life to developing her own distinct jazz style and who, on top of that, wrote disarmingly honest and provocative lyrics. This was all new to me, and I dare say I wasn't the only one whose eyes were opened by the film. Someone was trying to disappear. Amy, the movie, had the best opening weekend of any British documentary in UK history and went on to become the highest grossing British documentary of all time. It won the Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature and the Grammy Award for Best Music Film. And here's what was most interesting to me. If there is a lead song in Cappadia's film, it's probably this one, Back to Black. It's the one that was featured in all the trailers. I've been tracking Amy Winehouse's sales statistics ever since I got the idea for this story about three months ago. And in that whole time, whenever I would enter Amy Winehouse as my search term on Amazon.com, Back to Black would be on the top of the list of her singles, an indicator that that's the single of hers that's been selling the best recently. In other words, Back to Black is outperforming Rehab. And I think for a good reason. It's a beautiful song featuring a smooth delivery by a mature, perfectly controlled voice. It's very different from Rehab. Rehab invites us to peer into Amy's world with the detached gaze of an amused gawker. But Back to Black invites us into that world and asks us to feel it and understand Amy's pain as an expression of the same universal, profoundly human pain we all feel. I'd like to end this story with some completely anecdotal data. Ever since I watched Cappadia's film, I've been listening for Amy everywhere. And in fact, I've been hearing her everywhere. At the gym, in coffee shops, during the intermission between bands at a concert. And the song I hear most frequently is this. Sorry, it's rolling. I'm sorry, Charlie Murphy. I was having too much fun. This is Amy's remake of Valerie, originally performed by the Zootons. The fact that it's everywhere is even more proof that Amy's legacy is growing beyond the confines of rehab. Which is good, because as it grows, our understanding of who Amy was, and is, grows in ways it could not have grown while she was still alive. Because the bigger the world tried to make Amy, the more she sabotaged her own success by showing up on stage wasted or not showing up at all, by snubbing powerful backers or making disappointed fans demand refunds. But none of that matters now because that Amy is gone and the grudges held against her seem more pointless with each passing year. And the cruel jokes that may have once inspired a laugh of smug superiority just aren't that poignant anymore. The Amy of rehab has lost her novelty. And as all that residue of mortal coil blows away, as it all goes back to black, the only thing left of Amy, the only thing that any of us will actually care about in 50 years, is the music.
Thank you for listening to episode five of Audio Scrambler, Rehab Revisited, which was a rebroadcast of my old podcast, Songland Diaries. Audio Scrambler is on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, iTunes. We're all over the place. Like us, subscribe. Let us know if you have any great ideas for future episodes. We're always looking for interesting topics to cover. Our next episode, episode six of Audio Scrambler, is called Circus Sounds, and it commemorates the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus, which just went out of business last week. Episode 7 is going to be a follow-up to that one, and it's going to be all about clowns and song. Songs about clowns, clown-themed bands. It's a really interesting history. Also, summer is almost here, so be looking forward to a look backward to the Summer of Love, which happened 50 years ago this summer. Until then, I'm Bob Waller, reminding you to keep your ears open, because the more you listen, the more you love. Thank <laughs> you.